0: everyone and a very warm welcome to the vet method podcast my name is sanjay mangabai and i'm here in the wonderful cathedral city of salisbury in the southwest of england and today i'm really delighted to be joined by christopher parkle hi christopher welcome
1: good morning thank you for having me on today it's a pleasure to be here
0: so whereabouts are you today
1: I am in Portland, Oregon, on the west coast of the US. Sort of just kicking off my day today. The sun is just coming up over the horizon and hmm. looking for looking to get started.
0: Fantastic. I know the US has been having some pretty warm weather. I spoke to someone the other day, California way, or was it Pennsylvania? I'm not sure, but they were pretty much, you know, too hot, too warm.
1: That Might is absolutely the case here. Yeah, hmm. it's absolutely the case here too. We had a stretch at the end of June that uh That pushed our average daily high almost 20 degrees above beyond what it would normally be. And it lasted for about four to five days. So it was pretty brutal. In fact, we were, you know, for those who are familiar with the the U.S. geography, we Mm -hmm. for a couple of days were actually warmer than the southwest deserts down in Arizona and through Nevada and Utah. So it was it's been a really interesting year so far.
0: Okay. yeah. And, you know, thank goodness for air conditioning. Imagine. <laughs> so, a little bit about Chris. He's a board-certified veterinary behaviorist and lead clinician at the Animal Behavior Clinic in Portland, Oregon. He has practical in-clinic experience and is inspired by opportunities to meet people where they are and enhance their relationships with their animals. You have a an imp- quite an important mission, Chris. You know, we have pets to hopefully enrich our lives, so to speak, and the way that we do that is by enhancing the relationship we
1: have with them, right? Absolutely. It's something that's so important. And, and honestly, I don't think that it gets enough attention, especially within the veterinary space, where we mm-hmm. tend to be more laser-focused on physical health mm-hmm. without necessarily understanding the impact of emotional health and then the emotional health within relationships which then starts to sometimes get a little uncomfortable because now we start to talk about the emotional health of our clients as well and how they show up within relationship with their animals as well. And while that may be sort of outside our comfort zone and certainly outside of our professional expertise, it is relevant. And it even starts to factor back into the way in which people choose whether or not to to make an appointment at the veterinary clinic or whether to Mm -hmm. approve the estimates we give them or you know, any other sort of ripple effects that factor in. So even if we're not only focusing on the behavior piece, these Mm -hmm. other ripples are actually really impactful to the way that we practice.
0: Fantastic. And that segues nicely into the title of the podcast, which is the key to changing animal behavior that you probably didn't learn in vet school. And we're going to talk about that for the next few minutes. Okay, Chris, let's start with question number one. So who is your ideal client?
1: my ideal client is typically someone who is curious and what i mean by that is rather than saying i need this and they're demanding a particular solution they're showing up able to express their need in a way that allows me to then say cool i've got some tools that can help you and here are the ways in which we can do that now i know that not every client necessarily has that skill within their toolbox as we get Mm -hmm. started But that's often what we're trying to nurture within our conversations rather than it being sort of you know x plus y equals z sort of a scenario it's more about engaging in conversation figuring out why that concern that they brought to us actually is a problem because Mm -hmm. sometimes the solution that they are laser focused on isn't actually going to be the best way to address that issue so i want that curiosity i want that motivation ideally to not just hand that animal off to me so that I Mm -hmm. fix the issue, but Mm -hmm. they're motivated to work in relationship with their animal Mm -hmm. rather than against them. So we're Mm -hmm. creating a sense of agency and communication and conversation across that relationship.
0: Okay, fantastic. So you basically people who are curious, who have an awareness of probably the problem that they have, and who want to work in a partnership to try and resolve it in some way. Exactly.
1: exactly, And and even for clients who may not start there, we're looking for an openness to go there with a little bit of guidance and a bit of direction from myself or the other doctors on my team.
0: Perfect. That leads us nicely onto question number two. What's the biggest problem your clients face and how do you help them solve it?
1: So we deal with all sorts of different issues. You know, I would say the vast majority of them are motivated in some way, shape or form by fear anxiety, stress, emotional arousal. And those are the underlying emotional undercurrents that exist. Mm -hmm. How that then gets expressed typically leads to what the owner is defining as the problem. And so part of what we're looking at is, okay, what's the operant or the motor pattern that exists here that, that is of concern that, yes, we need to change for the client to be able to recognize progress. But not only looking to change that motor pattern and and saying, hey, what's underlying this, which as a veterinarian also means that we're looking for signs of medical illness or physiologic abnormalities or pain, Mm -hmm. discomfort, endocrinopathies, those sorts of things that may actually create or contribute to some of those emotional problems, which then lead to problematic behaviors. So we're trying to sift through those layers rather than saying, I treat aggression or I treat separation anxiety and pigeonholing it by that diagnosis. We really try to dig through those layers to see actually what is the problem here that we're trying to solve.
0: Okay. So whilst somebody may come to you with a particular problem, uh, like you say, like toileting, aggressive behavior barking jumping whatever it is it's the underlying issue that we need to get down to really uh, absolutely you know maybe identifying the triggers or you know in some way is the owner inadvertently rewarding that behavior or that problem in some way okay fantastic let's go to question number 3 what are the typical symptoms that people experience with that problem you know their pain points
1: yeah i love the fact that you specifically use pain points that's something what i talk about with my staff frequently and ultimately when we're dealing with whether it's the sort of the more traditional medical practice of vet med or whether we're dealing with behavior what we're providing is solutions to those pain points Mm -hmm. and what i also recognize is that within the field of behavior there's a lot of additional layers that sometimes factor in for our clients whether that's frustration whether it's embarrassment, you know, as you said, some, you know, in some cases, they, they may have accidentally or inadvertently contributed to some of these patterns that exist, either mm-hmm. because they just didn't know any better or because they responded in a way that they're not exactly proud of. Mm-hmm. So embarrassment or shame may factor into their uh, sort of symptoms or some of the problems that they themselves experience. In other cases, we're navigating disappointment or grief or even resentment of the pet. And this comes back to that original conversation we had about the relationship that exists here. Mm -hmm. Relationships are built on trust and clarity of communication. And so many people don't understand the animal that they're working with, either that specific animal or even the species that they're working with. When we talk about specific toileting needs for cats, for example, Mm -hmm. or the ways in which dogs might express discomfort with certain types of physical handling. There's a Mm -hmm. lot of confusion that exists for our clients. So I'm often trying to identify, again, not just what is the problem that the owner has identified, but what are some of the obstacles or some of the, the, the pain points that they themselves are experiencing so I can listen with empathy and reflect back on, hey, here's some things that we can do about that. And if we do X, Y, and Z, we will be able to directly or indirectly address those initial concerns that you identified.
0: Wow. You eloquently put it, that so much depends on the emotions, on the feelings that people have. And, you know, I've been in practice for 32 years and also regretfully didn't have a lot of behavior training and learning. And I I saw owners, you know, who had regret over having a pet, you know, all that anxiety, the guilt that you mentioned, the confusion about what's going wrong and why, maybe blaming themselves, blaming the pet, blaming other people even and not really getting down to the underlying problem of the whole thing. That's so important. Thank you for that, Chris. And just kind of question number four. What are the common mistakes people make when trying to solve problems? You know, the things they thought might work, the things they try but fail.
1: (laughs) Yes. You know, the most common off-track sort of solution that I see happening over and over and over again is when people do focus so intently on that problem the barking, the biting, the, you know, toileting, whatever that happens to be. Mm -hmm. And by nature of the way that our brains function and just the thought process and problem solving, our brains naturally say, I see a problem. How do I stop the problem? Which Mm -hmm. naturally lends itself to more of a punishment or an aversive type technique, which often means that clients are reactively trying to solve the problem you know, let's say the dog is overstimulated by the mail carrier, for example, or the postal carrier. And so they react and they charge the door. And then we've got owners who are clapping or throwing things Mm. or yelling or using squirt bottles. It's just not the most effective way to create behavior change. Sometimes it can work, absolutely, without question. But the more we understand about behavior and the science of behavior change, It lets us know that sometimes those corrective or aversive methods aren't actually working for the reasons we thought they were working. And oftentimes we're creating an environment of behavioral suppression that may actually contribute to fear, anxiety, or stress. And so for me, that you know, that big that big mistake is focusing on the problem versus saying, why do I think this is happening in the first place? And then trying to understand. What, it, what would it take to change that animal's emotional or behavioral response? And then that we can get into as well with sort of the, like, how do we do that? But I think that obstacle is, is sort of getting short-sighted in our vision of how to solve the problem. It's not just stopping the unwanted behavior, but rather managing so that it doesn't happen and then changing the emotional or behavioral response in that specific circumstance.
0: Absolutely. There's a lot to unpack there, but um, obviously there's a lot to understand about behavior. It's bad enough for veterinary surgeons, for clinicians, you know, not having a base knowledge about it. But uh, clients sometimes I found try to solve the issues by looking online, you know, and and coming up. But if they're not really sure about what the underlying issues are, have somebody trustworthy to guide them through that then they're trying all these different things that are not actually going to solve the problem, maybe even make it worse.
1: Yes. I and mean, you mentioned sort of someone who is trying sort of, quote, unquote, all the solutions. Yeah. If you think about the effect that has on the canine or the feline or equine learner. Mm-hmm the world is often now a confusing place because we've lost the consistency of actually getting clarity and repetition of communication. Mm -hmm. And so I understand the client's motivation to to try everything and Mm -hmm. yet that in and of itself often contributes to that confusion. And yeah, if that starts to impact the fear and anxiety issues, uh, it's not surprising that so many clients come into us frustrated saying, I've tried everything, nothing works. (laughs) I'm about ready to give up.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Thank you. So question number five. What is one valuable free action that somebody listening to this can implement that will help them solve some of these problems?
1: Yeah. The most I think dialing it down to the the purest sense is is as clinicians, whether that's a veterinarian or whether you know other paraprofessionals within the industry, when we hear a client saying, How do I stop my dog from? Fill in the blank, whatever it is, rather than immediately jumping into problem-solving mode and saying, oh, we'll try this, try this, try this, try this, try this. Mm -hmm. I would love if our industry could learn to pause Mm -hmm. and ask one additional follow-up question. That follow-up question is, in that situation, what do you want your dog to do instead? It's so... Simple and straightforward and doable. It doesn't require a tremendous amount of behavioral knowledge from the clinician to be able to ask the question. But what it often does, at least in my experience, is that it stops our clients in their tracks because they've often not thought about it. barking okay. you know, is the problem. But when you say, what would you like your dog to do instead? Most of the time, what I hear is, I don't know. I want him to stop barking. Yeah. And so that all of a sudden, they recognize they actually don't know where they're trying to head to which gives me that a window to say okay that's probably where we need to start because if you don't know what you want your dog to do in that situation I'm willing to bet that they don't actually know what you want them to do in that situation either so let's decide do we want your dog to let's say hear the mail carrier outside and then run to their bed and lie down for a reinforcer do we want them to form a relationship with the mail carriers that they're waiting at the door with wiggling tail? What do we want? And then that automatically sets our course for how do we teach that? Yeah. What does that look like? And even without having to unpack all of those details, it starts to reframe that mindset from stop the unwanted to teach the desired. And without having to get into a huge debate about the, you know the ethics or the morality of this training versus that training, we can simply teach the behaviors that we're looking for, assuming that we don't have other uh, medical obstacles or other issues with fear, anxiety, or stress that are preventing that learning from happening. Mm-hmm. We have the ability for most of our clients to, to then just assist them. And again, in the veterinary profession, just like you indicated, Many professionals have not had extensive knowledge or, or education around the field of behavior. And so mm-hmm. rather than you know throwing out solutions that may or may not be any better than what that client found online, mm-hmm. we have the opportunity to say, this is what you've identified as problem. Here is what you want your animal to do. M- am I the, the individual who can help you? If not, then here's a referral to someone who can but we're really just walking through that. Even if it's that client who asks that question sort of on the way to the front door, we can do that in 30 to 45 seconds Mm -hmm. and get them into the hands of someone who can help versus either abandoning our clients or potentially giving outdated or unhelpful advice.
0: Wow. That's so important. That's a really good, valuable action that people can take. I wish someone had told me that when i was a young vet because i made all the mistakes that you're pointing out you know so the idea is just to pause you know and then ask you know what other behavior do they want what behavior do they would they like instead and that's not just true in in behavior medicine as such you know in in every other thing i think we lack that skill to pause when we take a history from an owner in a clinical setting and we jump to these conclusions and assumptions in a hurry to try and find a diagnosis rather than actually explore it and investigate it a bit more. I read a book some time ago with trying to fight one of my own behaviors by a guy called Charles Duhigg, and he talked about a breaking the cycle of the cue, then there's a routine, and then there's a reward. So what you're talking about this behavior modification. It's the routine part that there's a trigger, cue, whatever it is, and then that routine, maybe that's the unwanted behavior, but somehow an animal may be doing it because they're finding some reward. Which is, you know, owners when they try and humanize their pets, at least in my experience, and I, you know, I'm not a behaviorist by any stretch of it, but uh, it seems the stuff they do sometimes, the dog does get some sort of reward, even if it's in the punishment, if it's in the, uh, you know, in yeah, in trying to stop the behavior, will shout at the dog, for example, or to do something and somehow that reinforces the behavior. Is that kind of what might happen?
1: Yeah. Absolutely, and, and one of you, the, there's a couple of shortcuts that we use within sort of the analysis side of behavior, which, and one of the first ones is to say, if a behavior is happening, and especially if it's continuing or strengthening, something somewhere is in fact reinforcing the behavior. Okay. Now people often assume, oh no, but I'm not rewarding it. I'm not giving them positive attention. Yeah. I'm not giving them a treat. No, 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 reinforcement can come from a lot of different places. Even the dog who perhaps feels overwhelmed and growls and snaps, and then the individual jumps back suddenly, that's reinforcement. It provided space that in that moment, reinforce the animal for responding in that way so we have to be curious about the different ways in which reinforcement may be occurring mm-hmm. you know and, and oftentimes when we're thinking about applied behavior analysis what you're describing is that sort of cue routine you know and then the reinforcement yeah. we often describe in terms of the abcs so the mm-hmm. antecedent conditions yeah. what's the circumstance under which that the next thing the b the behavior is likely to occur And then after the behavior occurs, what's the consequence? Was that enjoyable? Was it aversive? Was it consistent? Mm -hmm. All of those things then factor back into whether or not that behavior is going to be repeated again sequentially in similar sets of antecedent conditions. Yeah. and that's a you know a skill set that we utilize as part of our clinical assessment not unlike the way in you know traditional medicine we're looking at diagnostic tests right. or elements of our physical exam mm-hmm. our diagnostic process requires us to break it down into some of these nuggets and these little sequences to try to figure out what the motivators are which then allows us the opportunity to say which of the antecedent conditions do we need to change so that the behavior is unlikely to occur and or how do we change the consequences to change the motivational state of that animal, or perhaps guide them in a, a more productive or in some cases, safer direction.
0: Wow, you've already taught me some new stuff there. ABC for me was airway, breathing and circulation.
1: <laughs> but I've known- Don't forget Don't forget that one. That's still really important, just <laughs> that, 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 don't, don't let go of that quite yet. But yeah, yeah. there's another version too.
0: <laughs> yeah, antecedent, the behavior and the consequence. Okay, fantastic. There's so much to cover and we can't do it all. So I'm going to ask you question number six, which is one valuable resource that you can direct people to that will help.
1: Yeah, my favorite resource, uh, simply because it's given me an opportunity to sort of curate and collect, you know, even interviews like this, which will will land here on this page as well. The website, drpachel.com, which is Mm www.drpachel.com, includes links to each of my businesses, which includes the Animal Behavior Clinic in Portland. It also includes a dog training business that I'm affiliated with. It's a franchise-based model here in the U.S., looking Mm -hmm. at boarding and training services and positive reinforcement, and especially for individuals who are resonating with some of the information that we're discussing today. Mm -hmm. If you toggle over to the media page on that particular drpockel.com website, Mm -hmm. you'll find podcasts. Uh, interviews, videos, webinars, articles that I've contributed to, and so on. So it allows you to do a bit of a deep dive. And of course, from there, you can look at some of the other podcasts that I've been a guest on to mm-hmm. really start to do a deep dive into the world of animal behavior.
0: Fantastic. And we'll have that uh, that link on the resources uh, section of, of the podcast. So that's drparkle.com. Yep. Fantastic. And finally, uh, Chris, question number seven, what's the one question that I should have asked you that I didn't?
1: Yeah, we've covered some great information already, which has been amazing. And I'm the more I'm in this profession, so I've been in the veterinary profession now uh, since 2002, mm-hmm. so 19 years. And one of the things that I've learned along the way is that many of us, myself included, got into this profession to help animals. Mm-hmm. And sometimes because of Well, there's a lot of things that can get in the way of our ability to help, whether that's client finances, whether it's the business structure that we're operating within. And so I think it's important for each of us to continually identify what is it that is keeping me fired up? What is keeping that engine burning to move forward? Not just to then keep trudging through and and power through some of these obstacles, but to really remain connected to that internal fire that allows us to show up each and every day with a vision and a mission and a purpose. And so the question for me would be, why do you continue to do what you do 19 years later? Or, you know, uh, so I started veterinary behavior in 2004. So, you know, 17 years in the behavior space, why do you do what you do? And my answer to that is, honestly, because I love people as much as I love animals. Mm -hmm. I came into veterinary medicine for animals and for the ability to to diagnose and to treat and to help. And what I realized even in those first couple of years as a general practitioner is that so many of my clients, when they reach out for help, they're in crisis. Mm -hmm. And I found myself unable to really connect with them. I just didn't have the skill set or the toolbox to really connect with them and to help them in a way that they wanted to do. So I reached out and I had the opportunity to work with a number of uh, veterinary social workers here in the U S and really started to understand some of the nuance that feeds into some of these patterns that we've been talking about today. And what it really allowed me to recognize is that, as I said, I love people just as much as I love animals. Mm -hmm. And I am personally reinforced by seeing those light bulb moments, when they start to understand something that was previously confusing or frustrating, or when they're able to look at that animal that they brought in for treatment and really start to feel that sense of connection and relationship, which then feeds forward into everything that we have the opportunity to do as we move forward. And that's, The thing that, at the end of the day, when I reflect on the day that I've had, regardless of the other successes or the frustrations or the pain points that I've experienced, those are the moments that I say, "Cool, let me just reflect on that," because that's why I'm going to show up again tomorrow, no matter what else gets in my way. That's why I'm still here.
0: Wow, that's a whole another podcast on its own, uh, Chris. You know, you touched on some really important points there. You know, most of us, a lot of people, make decisions to become veterinary doctors in their late teens, early 20s, and then it doesn't turn out to be all they want it to be sometimes. But we are blessed to be in a profession that has so many different facets to it. We can find our genius in something, you know, find your passion in something and then maybe try and identify what that is and then follow that. For me, that's what gave me longevity. And, you know, you know, coming to work with renewed enthusiasm, which does wane from time to time <laughs> every day. Thank you, Chris. That was, that was really useful. Thank you very much. You, know, you gave us some really interesting and enlightening thoughts on behavior and behavior modification in pets. You showed us that it's possible maybe to transform their lives and uh, that education, educating ourselves, educating our clients is key, you know, to helping, to transforming. And I'm sure our listeners will take away some really valuable insights. So once again, Chris, it just remains for me to say thank you so much for joining me on this podcast today.
1: Thank you for having me, Sanjay. Again, I definitely appreciate it. It's an opportunity for me as well. Thank you.
0: You're welcome.